from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. The Royal Aeronautical Society has a range of specialist groups, which focus on a specific domain or discipline. They form a vital interface between the society and the world at large and serve both the interests of enthusiasts and professionals through debate, conferences, lectures and other activities. Learn how you can get involved. Visit www.aerosociety.com We are proud to present the following lecture from the 2012 Named Lecture Series. The Named Lecture Series honours distinguished aeronautical pioneers and offers a platform to high-profile speakers representing all sectors of the aeronautical and space community. All content published by the Royal Aeronautical Society is subject to our website terms of use. Visit aerosociety.com for more information. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Aeronautical Society's second Amy Johnson named lecture. My name is Elizabeth Donnelly and I'm a member of the Royal Aeronautical Society's Women in Aviation and Aerospace Committee. Uh, I have a, a few announcements. There will not be a fire alarm test this evening, so if the fire alarm does sound, exits are located at the front here and at the rear. Uh, no smoking throughout the building. Um, we would appreciate it if you would switch off your mobile phones. And uh, I'm delighted to say that we have Marion Blakey here and Phil um, uh, Phil Boyle, who's our president. Unfortunately, Catherine Bennett, our sponsor, Airbus, is uh, caught up in a meeting with the government minister, so cannot be here at the moment. Last year, to celebrate a century of women in flight, the Women in Aviation and Aerospace Committee inaugurated the Amy Johnson named lecture to publicly celebrate women in our industry. Amy Johnson, CBE, was a pioneering English aviator who received worldwide recognition in 1930 when she became the first woman to fly solo from Britain to Australia. She broke a string of other records over the following six years, including the first solo crossing of the Atlantic by a woman in 1932 and the solo record from London to Cape Town twice, once in 1932 and again in 1936. Amy Johnson was a member of the Air Transport Auxiliary during the Second World War and sadly in 1941 was the first member of the ATA to die in service. Reportedly she flew off course during adverse weather conditions and drowned in the Thames after bailing out when the plane she was ferrying ran out of fuel. She gained her pilot's licence on the 6th of July 1929 and in recognition the Amy Johnson named lecture is held as close to the 6th of July as possible. Later in 1929, she became the first woman to gain a ground engineer's sea license. On women, Amy Johnson said, women came into the picture when it was found that flying needed not so much physical strength as endurance, patience and resource, all qualities possessed by women in great measure. She also contrasted the opportunities available for men in aviation. Training was easy and comparatively cheap. Jobs were numerous and well-paid. Young men could join the, IRF, the RAF and then move on to being one of many kinds of pilot, instructor, navigator, radio operator, or many other jobs. But there were not the same opportunities for a woman, she pointed out, 
largely because the RAF did not accept women and there was much traditional prejudice against women having a responsible job such as an airline pilot. Years later, in 2012, greater opportunities for women do now exist, yet there is a continuing paucity of women in critical jobs in aviation and aerospace. The industry is missing out on a wealth of talent and creativity, and it is only through encouraging more diversity that the sector can flourish. As a committee, we have a number of initiatives intended to encourage more women into the sector, including our annual Women in Aviation and Aerospace Conference, which for the first time this year is going to the provinces. The event on the 2nd of November is being hosted by Rolls-Royce in Bristol, and if any of you would like to come, please put the date in your diary. We intend the Amy Johnson named lecture to tackle serious issues of interest to a wide audience, not just women. This is why we invite high-profile women to deliver the lecture, yet leave the focus of each lecture to the lecturer. We hope that they will talk about significant issues within the industry and the challenges facing us in the future. We feel strongly that this lecture should not be seen as pigeonholing women or giving us special treatment, but instead should be regarded as an opportunity to celebrate and showcase female talent. Last year, we were pleased that Carolyn McCall, Chief Executive of EasyJet, agreed to be our inaugural lecturer and gave her first speech of note to the aviation community. Next year, we hope and intend to invite a senior woman from the space sector to celebrate 50 years since Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman to journey into space. And this year, we are delighted to welcome Marion C. Blakey, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Aerospace Industries Association, the sister organisation to ADS, the UK Trade Organisation for Aerospace, Defence, Security and Space. In the words of Amy herself, we are living today in the air age and ours is one of the leading nations in our present civilization because we have realized, slowly but nonetheless surely, that to neglect this new, swift, vital means of transport would be the first quick step to our downfall. These words are still as true today as they were when Amy wrote them. The UK aerospace industry is now second only to the US, and our sponsor, Airbus, is the world's leading aircraft manufacturer. The success of this industry is vital to the UK, and women can only contribute to that success. And it is now my great pleasure to introduce Phil Boyle, President of the Royal Aeronautical Society, to introduce this evening's lecturer. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Those of you who have ever done a lecture, um, as Marion's going to be doing this evening, will know that this is the bit you hate most. You sit there and squirm while someone reads out your biography. And I've agreed with Marion that I'm not going to read out the whole of it. Um, I have to say it is an amazingly impressive biography. Um, first degree was University of Virginia, um, time at John Hopkins, um, an absolutely stellar career in aerospace. Um, she's been chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board. Um, she was FAA administrator. But it's not all been government work. Um, for seven or eight years, she ran her own highly successful public affairs consulting firm in, in DC. Um, currently, Marion is the eighth full-time 
CEO and President. I don't actually understand what the difference is, Marion, so <laughs> we don't get that in the speech. I'm going to ask that question at the end. Um, we just like lots of titles. <laughs> a bit like here then, really, isn't it? Yes. Um, uh, Marion's actually spoken to us before. Um, a few years ago, uh, she delivered the Limburg lecture. There's some connection with the Americans, I understand. Um, and perhaps most importantly, she is a fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Ladies and gentlemen, Marion Blakely. Well, thank you. Phil, thank you, and thank you for keeping that mercifully abbreviated. I was delighted on that front as well. Elizabeth, I must tell you how pleasant it is to be here together again with you and with lots of people here that I'm delighted to either get to know for the first time or see as old friends. Uh, I must tell you that Elizabeth gave me one thing left about Amy Johnson that I must tell you that I was really very pleased to know. She did some remarkable things, uh, one of which was fly with her then-husband across the Atlantic, setting a particular speed record then, but get this, crash-landed when she got to the U.S. And we Americans were so impressed, we gave her a ticker tape parade. So, look, you know, as long as you make it as our attitude, that works beautifully. But I also take particular pride in being here for this annual named Amy Johnson lecture because I do feel that women in aerospace are making real progress. One of the things I'm delighted to report in terms of manufacturing is that more and more women are making it into the C-suite, including for BAE North America, Linda Hudson is the CEO there. I think president and CEO as a matter of fact. So I am delighted that we are reaching the highest rungs in aerospace. The title of my lecture, Changing Course While Losing Altitude, Anglo-American Aerospace and Defense in an Age of Austerity, was very carefully chosen. The use of the term Anglo-American was very deliberate. To be sure, the US and the UK will compete. Our firms will continue to compete vigorously in a number of sectors. And the UK will inevitably and very appropriately pursue more industry partnerships with defense integration, of course, with the continent. That's to be expected. But I would still argue that our two countries will continue to share unique roles. We have real responsibilities that are singular to us on this planet. As defenders of Western values, engines of commerce, and exporters of security. Let me start this discussion, albeit a bit counterintuitively. Several hundred years ago, on the other side of the globe, and on water. In the early years of the 15th century, a vast armada ventured to Ceylon, Arabia, East Africa, the flotilla consisted of giant nine-masted ships, enormous, each more than three times the size of the Santa Maria, helmed by Christopher Columbus at the end of that century, 1492. They had nearly 30,000 soldiers and sailors. This mighty fleet did not belong to Portugal or Spain or Great Britain. It belonged to China 
Seven times, from 1405 to 1433, the Chinese treasure fleets set off for the unknown, bringing a vast web of trading links to China, from Taiwan to the Persian Gulf. They all came under Chinese imperial influence. This took place half a century before the first European, quote, discovered the Indian Ocean. With unrivaled nautical technology, the Chinese were poised to expand their influence well beyond India and Africa. Yet, less than a century later, for a variety of political and social reasons, all overseas trade was banned. The emperor ordered the giant ships burned, and they were. So, a great civilization on a path to new wealth, scientific achievements, geopolitical dominance, instead turned inward, became scientifically and culturally moribund, reactionary, and fearful of new challenges. A civilization that ultimately came under foreign domination. A civilization now staking its claim in the new global order. To be sure, the West is not going to suffer the fate of the old Middle Kingdom, much less domination by its 21st century descendants. Although some of our friends in the Eurozone seem determined to have a go at it at the moment. But this historical episode that I'm referring to is a cautionary tale against allowing the current economic and fiscal difficulties to prevent the English-speaking democracies from aspiring to new discoveries and to greater heights. Above all, it's a lesson to invest and to pursue scientific and technological advances that have propelled our countries to real preeminence, our nation's rise in the first place. A healthy defense and aerospace sector, I don't have to tell this audience, is critical, an indispensable component of our success, and indeed, I would characterize it as our renewal. It's needed not just to meet immediate national security and commercial imperatives, but to drive the kind of technological innovation, economic dynamism that's sorely needed on both sides of the Atlantic. Pushing against the viability of the Anglo-American defense and aerospace sectors is a blustery mix of fiscal, political, and global turbulence. In short, we're losing altitude. To provide some recent context, let's start with some updates about the US. What's happening with aerospace on the non-military side, for example, where we really see a mixed picture. Civil aircraft sales are estimated to top 50 billion in 2012, boosted by new fuel-efficient commercial airliners like the Boeing 787 and, of course, the new Airbus aircraft with the 350 coming online soon. Unfortunately, these state-of-the-art airliners are also sent by the United States around the country by an old and inefficient civil aviation infrastructure. Our air traffic control system dates back to World War II, and I'm not kidding. We're talking about radars and computers that are slower than the most average smartphone. A next-gen, as we call it, air traffic control system based on GPS is very much in development. The plans are in good shape, and they could do for the United States what Cesar is planned to do for Europe. 
but its prospects are darkened by the budget standoff within the United States political system. As you may know, at the end of this year, the United States is looking at several trillion dollars of fiscal events, to put it politely. In the absence of prompt and bold legislative action, which has certainly not been a strong point of our Congress in recent years, a raft of tax cuts are due to expire and $1.2 trillion will be cut out of discretionary government spending over the next 10 years. Yeah, $1.2 trillion. And believe me, that will not make a dent in our debt. Now, should these congressionally mandated cuts, known as sequestration, happen, and currently, that's the law of the land, the only way to avoid it is to repeal a law. The future of next-gen and many other infrastructure and aerospace investments is going to be very much put at risk. One billion dollars would be sequestered out of the FAA's budget. Next-gen simply won't be implemented anywhere close to the 2025-year target, if that should happen. This will mean that the United States and European airspace capacity will not increase will not see the expected growth in general aviation and in the commercial airline sales. Air traffic delays will return and approach gridlock. And the economic engine that is air transportation, the sector that for generations has pulled GDP up and down its crooked path, it's got to sputter and stall. And here I'm just talking about the civil aviation industry. Consider also space exploration, a source of U.S. national pride and major aeronautical achievement for over half a century. With the retirement of America's space shuttle program, we are looking at the United States now paying the Russians about $60 million a seat to transport our astronauts back and forth to the International Space Station. The NASA budget request for next year is the same dollar amount as was appropriated in 2008, representing a very significant decline in our space capabilities. The National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration recently put off the launch of a key weather satellite, risking the first coverage gap in forecast abilities since the 1960s. Now, I'm sure you all are following what's happening with weather, particularly in our country, where we have extraordinary events that are caused by these curtains of hurricanes, tornadoes, etc. Tornado literally just hit Washington, D.C. Makes no sense. Sequestration would slice another 9% or 1.6 billion from our already shrunken budget for civil space activities. And with respect to commercial satellites, a dated and counterproductive export control regime has lowered the United States' global market share from over 60% at the turn of this century, 21st century, down to 30%. Okay, now, why should any of this matter in the United Kingdom? After all, it's American firms that are being punished by export control restrictions. Unless you're visiting the United States and find yourself waiting on the tarmac, our air traffic control system probably doesn't become a top-of-the-mind concern. Nor is the mean by which U.S. astronauts get themselves hauled back and forth into space. Yet altogether, these shortfalls are manifestations of a much more deeply rooted neglect 
that ultimately is of consequence to the United Kingdom, and frankly to all of our allies and partners who are relying on a strong and engaged America. That neglect is the failure to invest adequately in the future, especially with respect to science and technology, whether it's education, infrastructure, or research and development. Arguably, the standard of living Americans and most of the West enjoy today and our national security, international influence, largely are all a consequence of substantial investment in these areas over the past 60 years. But that patrimony is slipping away. A landmark study a few years ago, some of you may have read some of this, uh, the rise, the gathering storm was the short title on it, uh, came to several very disturbing findings. Federal funding of research in the United States in the physical sciences as a percentage of our GDP has dropped by nearly half over the last three decades. American industry spends more, get this, on tort litigation and related costs than we do on R&D. Nearly 60% of the engineering doctorates awarded in the United States went to foreign students. And almost twice as many bachelor's degrees in physics were awarded in 1956, the year before Sputnik galvanized us all, than there were in 2004. Over the course of a decade, the United States went from being a next net exporter of high technology products to an importer. Consider that for generations, some of the most brilliant and ambitious technicians, engineers, scientists, sought employment in aerospace and the defense industry because they were inspired by the opportunity to work on the most cutting edge, innovative technology products. The combination now of fewer viable defense programs, shrinking funding, and growing uncertainty about our future call into question our ability to attract and retain a workforce of anything like that caliber in the future. A cohort of scientists, technicians, and engineers with unique expertise in military systems is leaving our workforce, up to 50% in some of our companies. It's not being replaced. There's an immediate risk from the atrophy of key design and development capabilities that really are unique to military needs. I'm sure many of you know, during the mid-1990s, British shipbuilders faced a gap of several years between the end of the Vanguard submarine program and the production of the Astute. During that hiatus, technical skills eroded so much that engineering teams from, yes, the United States were required to put the Astute program back on track. This atrophy can ultimately affect all elements of aerospace. The Boeing Company has publicly acknowledged that a near decade-long gap in new development contributed very much to the delays that were associated with the production of the 787. It's not that Boeing forgot how to build aircraft, as the joke at the time went, any more than the United Kingdom forgot how to build a submarine. It's that highly specialized people and the skills that they have must be employed regularly on consequential and important projects. That's the way it gets done. This doesn't bode well for manned combat aircraft on either side of the Atlantic. The now mothballed Harrier was the last all UK produced fighter jet. 
In the United States, there were seven manned aircraft programs in the 1980s, three in the 1990s. Today, there's a joint rotorcraft program on the drawing board, plus a follow-on bomber slated to begin development next year. And this is all assuming that the funds are available. That's it. At the same time, the average U.S. Air Force fighter is 22 years old. Obama averages 35 now. <laughs> Our refueling tanker is a venerable age of 47. For the United States aerospace industry, many of these long-standing program shortcomings were papered over by a surge of U.S. defense procurements that started following the 9-11 attacks. That was then. Over the past two years, American defense budgets have flattened in real terms and under current law will decrease by nearly $490 billion over the next decade. Unlike the U UK, the U.S. defense budget includes the costs of military health care for active duty and retirees. Our military pension and benefit structure is significantly more generous as well. These growing personnel costs are putting downward pressure on resources available to maintain America's cutting edge in technology into the future. For example, procurement of new weapon systems and equipment represents one-fifth of U.S. defense spending, but it represents 40% of the proposed cuts by the Obama administration in next year's budget. Modernization accounts, which include research and development and testing, are projected to decrease by $110 billion by fiscal year 2017. So this is more than any other defense appropriations category. All this following the cancellation of several major modernization programs by then Secretary of Defense Gates back in 2009. Now, in the event of sequestration, nearly a half trillion dollars in defense cuts would follow over the next decade. The cuts, they're going to be mostly front-loaded, starting with $53 billion in 2013, using already depleted investment accounts as the bill payer. These U.S. reductions would be significantly more than U.K. defense cuts, and those, of course, as we all know, have been traumatic and at times controversial. Cuts that actually shuttered ancient regiments and mothballed entire categories of ships and aircraft. The U.S. is fortunate to start from a much larger baseline. Austerity, after all, is a relative term when you're talking about a $525 billion defense budget. But without any measurable progress on the budget negotiations at home, the effects of sequestration will start being felt as early as this fall. In fact, many of our member firms, I can tell you right now, are already trimming their payrolls and their facilities. Layoffs are happening right now. Without correction, an already well-consolidated U.S. defense industry, we're now seven firms, whereas we were several dozen 20 years ago, will shrink even further. Remaining vestiges of real competition would likely fade away, and U.S. defense firms would be pushed inexorably toward becoming the kind of government-run arsenal of the kind that Prime Minister Thatcher ended by privatizing the U.K. defense sector during the 1980s. 
The defense industrial capability that the U.S. military and our closest allies have always counted on would no longer exist at a size reasonable to meet future needs. In the past, there may have been vigorous debate and really violent disagreement over what the United States did with its global military power, but the assumption, at least since World War II, was that such power would always be available if needed. Not, however, after a decade of sequestration. As with the UK Ministry of Defense, the US Defense Department is trying to mitigate the impact of that, these cuts by boosting international sales. We're all for that. But even so, the grim reality is that the present defense industrial capability in the United States, our capacity in the UK and Europe, well exceeds the available domestic and global demand. Sales to countries like India, Qatar, Singapore, they simply aren't going to close the gap. In many respects, this is the existential problem that is affecting Western aerospace. Of course, none of this is happening in a vacuum. Even as the West turns increasingly inward to deal with our own fiscal and economic troubles, the rest of the world isn't standing still, either militarily or with respect to civil and commercial aerospace as well. Now, because I don't work for the United States government, I did for a while, so I know the difference with all the attendant requirements for employing <laughs> diplomatic euphemisms, I can come out right now and say we're talking mainly here about China. China remains an important customer for Western aerospace products such as Rolls-Royce engines, commercial airliners from both Boeing and Airbus. No question about it. Last year, the United States exported approximately 5.5 billion in commercial aerospace products to China, and we imported only a little more than 400 million. This represented for us a $5 billion trade surplus, and yes, we like that a lot. Over the next 20 years, we expect to sell more than 3,700 new airplanes there, valued at 400 billion, not counting the revenue from the substantial aftermarket that's associated with these products. Chinese leadership now has long lamented that their country's reliance on foreign experience and high-end equipment is a real problem. The Aviation Industry Corporation of China, AVIC as I think most of us know it, has now got substantial civil work in addition to its military programs. These include the Civil Central Center Fuselages for the Bombardier C-Series Regional Jet, rudders for the Boeing 787, and other parts for Airbus aircraft as well. The Boeing Airbus duopoly is no longer a sure thing even within the next five years. What China lacks in experience and expertise, it more than compensates with both resources and ambition. China has committed $5 billion to developing a regional jet, which may or may not get certified but a further $30 billion for the C919 narrow-body commercial airliner program. As Boeing's president, Jim Arbaugh, said of Chinese commercial airlines, uh, aircraft, eventually these companies, 
Eventually, they're going to get it right. Furthermore, as the United States and the West is slashing defense budgets and curtailing investment in R&D, China has increased defense spending at double-digit rates and tripled investment in technology and in people. It now produces roughly half the world's advanced degrees in engineering. The past several years, China's space efforts have included a third manned spacewalk, expansion of an indigenous compass satellite navigation system, and most recently, appropriately enough in this lecture, the first Chinese woman in space. Okay, nevertheless, some reality check is also in order for those who are ready to hand off the 21st century to Beijing. For one thing, the baseline from which they start, at least with respect to aerospace, is a rather low one. The C919 is a Chinese attempt to replicate the success of the Boeing 737. That first flew in the late 1960s. As a result of its one-child policy, the country is also confronting a demographic challenge similar to Europe in some respects, in that it has an aging population. But that, in China's case, is compounded by it's also a rapidly more male population. The legitimacy of the Chinese political system depends on sustaining what essentially are unsustainable rates of economic growth, 8 to 10 percent, and 20 million new jobs per year. The danger in this is that the regime will respond to these economic, political, and demographic stresses by turning to the age-old formula of nationalism and grievance against perceived slights from abroad with all the attendant risk. So, the West, the United States, and the United Kingdom in particular is facing a combination of underinvestment at home, external challenge from rising powers, and with regard to aerospace, we have little choice but to change course. Trying to do more with the same and really less money will only lead to economic stagnation and geopolitical retreat. I've got a favorite quote. It's a quote that's attributed both to Winston Churchill and to the New Zealand physicist Ernest Rutherford, and it's gotten some newfound popularity because of our circumstances. Quote, Gentlemen, we're out of money. Now we have to think. <laughs> so let's think together. With our coffers depleted and China on the road to parity, the West must run faster, we must be smarter. We need new technology challenges to inspire the next generation of engineers and scientists. We need to think about the unique advantages possessed by the West and leverage them to the full. In particular, the combination of entrepreneurial spirit and our advantage in complex systems engineering and program management that can produce a joint strike fighter, a 787, or a Rolls-Royce turbofan engine. Three interrelated fields of aerospace, each areas of unique comparative advantage for the West, stand out from my perspective as holding promise for the future. Unmanned aircraft systems, commercial space, and cyber. Now, while most of the headlines concerning UAS are related to their military use still, 
the most noteworthy recent events have been on the civilian side. A recently passed U.S. law that came with bipartisan support, a rare move in our gridlocked Congress, uh, will integrate unmanned systems, or UAS as we're calling them, into civil aviation and into our air traffic control network. As I know from direct experience leading the Federal Aviation Administration, old habits die pretty hard. And the proof in implementing this is very much going to be both in implementation will and in funding. But this new framework for UAS is needed because of the growing domestic marketplace for unique capabilities offered by these systems, both in the public and in the private sector. In the continental United States, unmanned systems have recently been used to deal with forest fires, such as the ones in Colorado right now, and provide surveillance support in the wake of a lot of other natural disasters. They can hover as cell towers for long periods of time, really changing our scope in terms of cell use and coverage. And they are going to be ones that we will use for pipelines, utility lines, roads, surveilling infrastructure anywhere and everywhere for maintenance purposes and other concerns. UAS also can monitor forests, farmlands, looking at questions of moisture content, destructive insects. They can do it in all weather, day and night, without a break, and most importantly, at a fraction of the time and cost that we're using for these kinds of activities now. So the regulatory and legislative apparatus is established, the market is clearly there, and the technology is coming online. Those are the three main elements necessary for any aerospace breakthrough, and they're falling into place with respect to UAS. Global spending on these systems now approaches $90 billion, and the rush is on to match U.S. capabilities in this area. In fact, this includes a recent joint Anglo-French agreement to develop UAS, the first venture of its kind between two countries of this type since the 1960s. The real danger, from our vantage point, is that U.S. will have our export control rules do the same kind of damage that has already been done to our commercial satellite arena. You know, so from our vantage point, getting the regulatory apparatus sorted out is probably most critical to future growth and innovation. With respect to space, even as I was lamenting the underfunding of NASA, it's very clear that the private sector is beginning to step up and there's a new font of innovation and growth. The recently successful SpaceX mission demonstrating cargo resupply capability to the International Space Station was a very important step forward. U.S. commercial suppliers should have the ability to routinely and safely transport crews to the space station soon as well. Human certified spaceflight by private providers that's a big deal. This will eventually free up, of course, NASA's resources and will allow them to focus on new exploration and the challenges that I think we all are hoping to see, and I'm talking about beyond low Earth orbit. Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic Space Venture is a transatlantic commercial space partnership that also holds great promise. The company already has deposits for more than 500 individuals who want to go up. It's huge. And finally, in the realm of cybersecurity, 
Western nations have recognized that our digital information and communication structure is at risk from attacks both by criminal groups, hackers, terrorists, state-sponsored terrorism. This represents, however, a tremendous opportunity for aerospace and defense firms because we possess the high-end skills. We've got both the skills and, unfortunately, the experience. It can't be replicated and it can't be outsourced to address this. However, no matter how boldly or skillfully we seize these civil and commercial aerospace opportunities, the growing gap between capacity and demand on the defense side will have to be addressed. With fewer total resources to spare on redundant or excess programs, maintaining the technological supremacy of the West, at least in the defense arena, will require unprecedented levels of collaboration between like-minded nations and defense industries. The UK has already begun working along these lines with the French. We also have to think about the means of defense ties between the United States and the UK becoming stronger. The special relationship, without the capability to protect the shared values and interests unique to the relationship, risks this becoming mostly a rhetorical expression. Despite the still massive gap in defense spending between the United States and other leading powers, the U.S. industry is increasingly dependent more on our close allies and partners. The F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, the backbone of American air supremacy, this will be true for the next generation, but only with the help of the U.K.'s contribution, both financial and technologically. It's a viable program, and that's what makes the difference, is the jointness of it between us. Remember, most of the military capabilities in our technology, now fielded by our armed forces, was developed between 20 and 30 years ago. And unfortunately, on account of the investment shortfalls that we're seeing, this is setting off a desperate competition for shrinking Western defense budgets. It's therefore much more likely that our forces will not have the same military advantages we enjoy today when we look at them in retrospect 20 to 30 years from now. We will be diminished. In the past, the investments that provided this edge were driven by external threats to our society, our security, and our way of life. Necessity was the mother of funding as well as the mother of invention. With the demise of the Soviet Union, today's conventional and strategic threats are diminished from the past century. However, we can't always count on future competitors to implode or to fail to produce leap-ahead technology. Other security challenges of a much more recent vintage, from global terrorism to rogue states seeking strategic weapons, those threats continue unabated. So the risk may be different from what galvanized the English-speaking democracies in the past. But in many respects, the opportunities are the same. We should not require a world war or a cold war to support the kind of investments that drive future prosperity or, if needed, defend our way of life against adversaries that are now unforeseen. The U.S. and the United Kingdom publics have some difficult choices to make in the years ahead with respect to national budgeting and investment priorities. 
Standing here in the island that gave us radar, the Spitfire, the Concorde, it's our responsibility to make a full-throated argument for sustaining a robust defense and aerospace sector that will sustain our freedoms in the 21st century. As any survivor of Dunkirk, the Blitz, or HMS Sheffield can certainly attest, failure to do so in the face of new challenges can have costly, indeed calamitous results. And burning the proverbial ships is simply not an option. So in closing, let me note that later this month, the entire world will turn to London for the Summer Olympics. The last London Olympics, of course, were in 1948. Wartime food rationing and housing shortages at that point was still a reality. And many doubted whether the UK could pull off the games or even that you should try to do so. Those successful London games, followed by the coronation of a poised young queen, the conquest of Mount Everest, and Sir Roger's four-minute mile lifted the spirits of a war-weary nation, a war-weary world. The return of the Olympics to this island symbolizes the British ability to do great things, break new barriers, and aspire to new heights even in this time of scarcity. Indeed, as we've come to know in our business, great goals bring out the best in great nations. Thank you for this opportunity to talk to you tonight. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.